website. It's written by a handful of people that rotate, and it's uh, like what it sounds. It takes what we do on Sunday and takes it further, and they're always very good. We have some very uh, gifted writers, but I I encourage you to go back and look at the one that was written last Sunday. I'm going to read just one portion of it, but it's it's not only insightful, it's, it's absolutely hysterical, and talking about fear. And I'm going to read just one short section of it. There's an excellent reason why this series on calling is titled Fear. Someone in staff was honest enough to spell it out for you, though not honest enough to use horror movie font with letters that drip green blood. Do not be fooled by the curse of people. Fear is fear is fear. Flee back to your cubicle farms. Run, run fast. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a great man, and he said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, and he was wrong. Seriously, that's crazy. That's one of those sorts of things that you see up on a wall and say, oh, what a lovely motivational thing. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Fear, my friends, is a very useful thing. The whole concept of fear is it warns us when there's danger. Danger, danger, Will Robinson. There are things to run away from. Learn this early. Fear tells you something is dangerous. And there are times when the wisest thing to do is listen to your fear and walk the other way. Because what fear does is it sort of lays something before you. There's a danger in front of me. Will I go through it or will I turn away from it? Sometimes the danger is so high and what's on the other side of the danger is so small that it's not worth going through it. Sometimes even when the danger is high, what's on the other side is so great that we make a decision to move through the fear. But to say we have nothing to fear, but fear itself, quite honestly, is wrong. There's sometimes when we have nothing to fear, but fear itself, when the fear is absolutely irrational, when there's no reason for it. And it's in those moments we say, look, there's really nothing dangerous. But when we deal with calling, there is danger. If you have missed parts of this series, I'll sum up. The series on calling focused on this, that calling is not success and it's not achievement. It's not simply knowing your personality or what you're good at. Calling is getting a sense of being drawn into accomplishing something for which you were made. And at the heart of calling is being fit for a transcendent cause, something beyond ourselves. It's something greater, something worth being engaged in. And if you have any sense of being called into a transcendent cause, then you will have moments of fear. And one of the fears that will raise its head is the fear of failure. Everybody at some level fears failure. What happens if I fail? And this question of fear of failure, it raises and gets more pronounced depending on how important that thing is you're going after. If you might fail at something insignificant, so what? The prospect of failing at something that is a a moment of seminal importance in your life or the life of other people, then that raises the stakes. I I think the the Olympics, winter and or southern, southern, summer, thank you. No matter what I say, just assume what I mean. Winter or summer... They, they frame for us in a very interesting way the reality of failure. Because sort of the nature of these endeavors is these are sports that are off the radar. Most of the time, 
there's not a lot of you who are watching curling in your spare time, much less speed skating, quite honestly. They go off the radar, and athletes train themselves almost at a ridiculous level in order to get to this moment. And it doesn't happen very often. They're every four years, and the lifespan of a competitive athlete in many of these sports is relatively short. So often they've got one Olympics in order to achieve that thing that they want to achieve. And so failure stares them in the face. And I don't know if you saw this last night, but the short track speed skating is a fascinating event. It's really like roller derby, you know, and what, what you had last night is you had this guy, Apollo Ono, who has won five medals over, he's sort of an unusual, he's already been in two Winter Olympics, he's in the third now, and he has a chance to have the most medals of anybody in a Winter Olympics, and so he gets in the line, and there's six guys, and they're racing around, and they get so low to the ground, you wonder how they stay up, and they're also cutting inside of each other, and you can bump one another at points that I'm not quite sure I get yet. But last night, here's what happened. He's coming around the final turn. He's in fourth place. You don't get anything for fourth. Nothing, you know? No medal. And so he's in fourth, and another American's in fifth, and you're like, ah, they're not going to get it. There's three Koreans in front. The entire Korean team is in front, first, second, and third. And then the third guy gets just a tad greedy, and he decides he's going to cut under the second guy. As they're rounding the final turn, literally, I don't know, what's it, 50 feet from the finish? The second and third Korean guys go flying off the, off the uh, ice into the ramp, into the side. Apollo Ono honestly looks like... <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly there's a finish line. He's like, you know, I mean, here's this moment. I have failed. I failed in my quest. Well, the, the Koreans just hit the wall, and you're now getting the silver medal. And the other American, he's thinking, I'm next to last. And suddenly he's on the medal platform. He gets third. I mean, in some of these sports like that, you can have success or failure. And so I, I can't hardly imagine what it's like to be standing in that line as you're there and you know, if one mistake here and I fail, the, the, the fear of that could be absolutely paralyzing. And it's a game. I mean, seriously. It's, it's exciting and I, I can see the thrill of competition and, and I don't denigrate it at any level. I'm just saying the honest truth. It's a game. It, it's a race. That's all. Now, when you imagine this, if Kurt and I are correct and that God has called you into a transcendent cause and he's fitting you for a task and that task or those series of tasks throughout your life will have impact on other people's souls, it will influence their happiness, their health, their joy, their sense of beauty, their understanding of relationship with God, and yes, even how they spend eternity. If that's on the line, now you're standing on the line there You have every right to be afraid of failure because the consequences are high. I think it's a mistake for us to look at things like fear of failure and whitewash them and say, no, no, you have nothing to be afraid of. We stare at the fear in the eyes, and then, though, there's perhaps another question. See, fear is a crossroads. Danger is before us. It causes us to do one of two things, move away or move forward. The other question to ask is, and the issue of calling is, if fear of failure wins, then I have to ask this question. What happens if I reject my calling? What happens if the fear of failure wins and I walk away and I reject my calling? What does that look like? Moses stands on the edge of that. 
He's been called into something great in the passage we're about to talk about. And he's on the verge of not being the Moses we know. He's on the verge of never being spoken about again, of being not even a footnote in history. Because he wants to reject his calling. Because his fear of failure is just too high. If you have any sense that God is calling you into something, and you wonder, are you fit for that task? You're in good company. Today, what I want to do is I want to walk through what God offers to Moses, which is the exact same thing he offers to you. As you deal with those moments of honesty and wondering, are you enough for the task that you've been given? God provides two powerful things that allow us to move forward and so experience a life of significance and transcendence. Here's the passage. I'm going to read some of what I've read in previous weeks. And it's in the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. And uh, just to catch up a little bit, the story goes like this. People of Israel were in Egypt, and they were in slavery, and there were lots of them there. And God had decided he was going to bring them out, and he was going to bring them into a new country. He was going to deliver them. And he had told Moses this, and Moses was sort of an outcast at the time, and Moses, though, thought this was a good idea to deliver the Israelites, but he wasn't real keen on the idea that God seemed to think he was going to be the one who did it. And so he was arguing with God and throwing up all sorts of different reasons why he shouldn't be the one to do it. And I'll pick up in the middle of that. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I kind of like that. Hey, God, since you've shown up, haven't gotten any better, still not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, okay, let's think this through. Who gave man his mouth, who make him deaf or mute, who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I can fix this, Moses. I know what you're like. Now go. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And then Moses says, I said last week, what the real part of what he, he's saying is, but Moses said, oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. Really. That's really all I'm asking. I don't... Calling. Moses. Significance. A life of transcendence. A life of having... Uh, moments that matter, of seeing other people's lives shaped. And he says, no thanks, really. Can I just go back to my cubicle? Can I just go back and live a nice, easy life? I really, great, thanks for the moment of significance. I'll go the other way. Please send someone else. Anybody, really. And then this is what God says. Then the, the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. I'm sorry, I say that with an inflection because I really think that's what God's attitude would have been. He can speak well. Is this going to make you happy? He's already on his way to meet you, and he, his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him. I mean, you're still in, the, in here, Moses, not pulling you out. And put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak, and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hands so you can perform miraculous signs with it. He accommodates to him, and he says, Moses, now go, and then... After this whole scene ends, there's another verse which is really curious. And, and you know, I, I'll just tell you it in a minute. But again, to set the stage, God says, I'm going to deliver. There's literally a million people in Israel, in Egypt, Israelites. And I'm going to deliver them. He's told Moses this. Moses knows this well. He's sending him down to do it. And Moses said he doesn't want to do it. And God says, no, I'm going to send you to do it. And, and then Moses goes to his, father, his father-in-law and says this. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. I mean, at this point, he is not won over. He's now saying, God, okay, you're going to send me back, but <laughs> it'll probably fail. There probably isn't even anybody there to deliver. Moses has not suddenly become a person of iron will. 
But God has given him two things, which in the end are going to carry him through that. And it's the very same things he offers us at those moments when we're afraid that we're going to fail at whatever we're called to do, small or large. The first is this. God promises that he'll go with him. He says, okay, you're going to speak to Aaron, but it's going to be my words. I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to teach you along the way. I'm going to give you what to say. And here's the staff that I perform miraculous signs with. I will go with you as you do this. Now, why is that important? Let's be honest. There is something extremely comforting in the middle of, of, of a, a difficult or an embarrassing moment of knowing we have somebody with us. I don't know why that's so. They don't need to be smarter, more confident, braver, but they're there. They're next to us. There's something of great comfort in that. When I was with Campus Crusade, Nan and I had chosen to go to a university. We wanted to go to a place where, well, quite honestly, nobody believed in Jesus. And so we chose New England. And we went there and we went to a campus and not a lot of people believed in Jesus. And they were pretty hardened about it. And one of the things that Campus Crusade liked to tell you to do is don't go by yourself. You know, don't go out there alone. Please go with somebody else. It'll help. And so, we'd, you know, we'd go meet people and talk to people and go with somebody else. But occasionally, just occasionally, I'd go have to go to a dorm room and there wasn't anybody else to go with me. And, you know, I'm, I'm walking up into a dorm room at a college, and at that point, I'm 32, so I'm ancient to them. And they're, as I'm walking down the dorm, the hallway, they're wondering, okay, where's the geezer's walker, and how is he making it all the way up the hallway, and really wondering who I am. And then I walk up to him, and I said, hey, and they're thinking, narc, you know, who, you know somebody's been sent in here to spy on us, and I'm going to try to engage them in conversation. Now, it's pretty lightweight. I'm just trying to talk to them, you know, maybe invite them to something. We're going to do debate in the existence of God carry on a conversation, tell them about an event that's going on. I'm just trying to engage them a little bit. There were a number of times where somebody would say to me something that would, in the end, shut it down very quickly. Uh, A not nice version of, hey, no thanks, don't really want to talk to you today. When I was by myself, do you know how strong the temptation was to go, boy, I really have a lot of paperwork to do. You know, I, I probably should just go back home and work on some of that stuff for the retreat that's coming up, or I'll write a letter to my supporters. It's a good day for that. It's kind of cold, too, and I'm feeling tired. Maybe I should go get a cup of coffee. Anything, really, to move out. But if I'm with a companion, they don't have to be brighter, smarter, better-looking, anything. I'm far more likely to continue. There's something about somebody coming alongside of you that makes a huge difference as we face a task that's difficult. It doesn't necessarily make us more successful. It gives us more courage. It's why when Jesus was talking to his disciples and, and sending them out, what he says to them is, I want you to go out in twos. You know, don't go out there alone. I want you to go out in twos. And that's the way he sends them. Now understand this. When God calls us into the midst of a transcendent cause, and he's calling you, He doesn't just send somebody who's not quite as bright or as smart or as good-looking. He sends himself. He is our companion in the midst. He says to Moses, I'm going to be right there alongside of you. And it's very reminiscent of what Jesus says to his followers at the end of one of the Gospels. is called the Gospel of Matthew. And the last two lines of that are Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I'm giving you a monumental mission. That's a paraphrase. I want you to go into all the world and teach people about me. Because they need to know how to have a relationship with me and have their life changed. And then he says, and lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Every moment. 
God promises to stand alongside us as we face danger and as we face fear. And as we get to those moments when we want to back away, he promises to be there always by our side, giving us strength and giving us hope and giving us courage. He does not say, you go out there and do it. He says, you go, I go with you. Then he promises, quite honestly, to give us competence, to give us ability, to allow us to succeed in the things we fear we'll fail in. There's a, a passage in the New Testament. It's in the, a book called Second Corinthians. And Second Corinthians is a letter that's written to a church in Corinth. And we call it Second because it's the second letter that we have. And in this passage, the man who wrote it, a man named Paul, was talking about the mission that God had given him, his calling to walk into places where Jesus had not been heard of and to engage people and, and to bring gatherings of people who would come to faith and, and live out that hope in the midst of needy cities. And in the midst of that, he talks about the confidence that he has. And he says this, Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our confidence comes from God. You may be terribly gifted. You may be well gifted. Terribly sounds like the other way. You may be extremely gifted. And you you know, if you've been here at all, you know well enough that I believe that you're supposed to serve out of what you're good at, not out of what you're bad at. That you want to serve out of your strengths and more mitigate your weaknesses. That's a lot of ways where you see our calling. But nonetheless, let's be honest, there's never any point in a transcendent cause when we ourselves are enough to see it accomplished. Really, do we believe that I have in me enough to shape somebody's eternity? That I have enough within me to change somebody's destiny, to change them from somebody who's hopeless to somebody who's hopeful? Our competence comes from God. He's the one who makes us to succeed. You have every right to fear failure. If you go alone and if you go without his competence. He's the one who gives it to us. He calls us. He equips us. When it comes to home projects, it is no exaggeration to say I'm incompetent. Seriously, ask anybody. Ask my wife. It's not that I'm sort of bad, and I'm not being self-deprecating. I'm incompetent. I, I don't do things well. Nobody has ever called me a handyman unless they were snickering. There's nothing in terms of home improvement that I do well. As we were in the beginning of our renovation process, the end of my usefulness was last week when they were knocking things down. I can do that. I can demolish walls. Now, on, tomorrow, they're going to start building. I'm no longer useful in this process. I kid you not, I'm incompetent. And yet, I have laid down hardwood floor in two houses. You're supposed to go, woo. How have I done this? I relied on somebody else's competence. In both cases, I had friends who knew what they were doing and who walked me through and they taught me all along the way how to do it. I could not have done it on my own. I lacked the ability to do so. They gave me their competence to allow me to do it. And I remember well this one night when we were in California and I was redoing the hardwood of of the entire house. Now, it wasn't big, so it's not as dramatic as it sounds, but I was redoing the hardwood in the whole house and my friend had gone home. And I was in a hallway and the hallway turned you know, drat that hallway. It's easier when it's straight. Then it's like a bowling alley. But it turned. And so I was trying to figure it out. And I was really tempted just to stop. But I really needed to get it finished. And so what I did is I, I stopped and I did this. His friend, my friend's name was Neil. I said, okay, now what did Neil tell me to do? 
And one step at a time, I remembered exactly what Neil had told me to do. Take the wood, you measure here. I went through every step exactly how he said it, and then I did it. It was important for me all along the way not to go look at this entire hallway I have to do, but just to go, I'm going to do this thing next. I relied completely on his competence, not on mine. And when I finished, you know what? There was a flaw. There was. There was a place on the floor that didn't quite fit right. And you know who noticed that? No one but me. I invariably would point it out to people who knows why. Yeah, I laid down the heart of it. And right there, do you see that little spot? Why am I doing this? I still don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm pointing it out to him. Nobody noticed. Sure, there was a flaw. I didn't do it perfectly. Big picture. The task was to lay the hardwood. The task not, was not to do it perfectly. I promise you, you will not do the calling that you have in your life perfectly. And some of us will wait until we're absolutely sure we're going to do it completely right. And if you do that, you will never move. Our competence comes from God. He gives us all we need to accomplish what we're called to do and it does not have to be perfect because he's using people like you and I. Some of us get daunted by what we're called to do. You have a sense of something you're supposed to do and it looks too big. I encourage you to remember a couple of things. You're not alone. God will give you competence one step at a time. Just one piece. I'll lay that piece of wood And then when that's done, I'll lay that one. There are, I don't know, how many people today who profess to follow Jesus? Let's just say a billion. It's a lot. It started out with one, Jesus. And then there were 12. And then there were 100. And one at a time, they engaged people. I'm pretty confident that If Jesus had said to Peter, Peter, I want you to reach a billion people, that Peter would have said, can't, can't, can't do it. I I don't have that. Go. And you're going, make disciples. Talk to a person. You probably today will not end the homeless problem. But how about this family? Engage there. I will give you everything you need for that moment. How about that child who's failing miserably in school? Can you engage that child and help to make them successful? How about that person who wonders if there's any future hope for their life? They've achieved all the success they thought they'd ever had, and yet still life feels empty. That person. You are not going to end sadness and despair today. That person. See, calling is both bigger and smaller than we tend to think. Quite honestly, you're called to the moments of your day. You're called to engage real situations. And sometimes those situations are big, but it's just one moment at a time. When I got my PhD, one of my friends who has a PhD said, the PhD is far more about endurance than it is about intelligence. And he was right. Calling is far more about a, this is, I'm sorry this is going to almost rhyme and I try not to do this it's really just happening it's the right words it's more about availability than ability it's about saying God I'll, I'll go and Moses was scared to death 
He still wasn't a good speaker. He still didn't believe there were even any people there who were alive in order to save. But in the end, he went. No, no great story of him turning his face and saying, yes, I will go. He went. God went with him. God gave him the confidence for the individual moments. And in the end, the transcendent cause was achieved. A million people were moved from one place to another. A message of hope went through that people. A man came out of that line and preached a message of hope and life. Died on a cross and then shared that message with a few people who shared it with more. And here we sit. Because a knee-knocking, fearful man named Moses walked into his calling. I'll be blunt. If he can do it, you can. So can I. At the end of the day, this is what I want you to know in this series. God has called you to two things. He's called you to a relationship with him, and he's called you to a life of significance. And the biggest thing we can do is engage. As we go to a communion today, I find a parallel in communion fascinating with Moses. And that's this. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he walked into a garden with some of his friends and he prayed, and this is what he prayed. Lord, please, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Now, how similar does that sound to Moses saying, oh Lord, please send someone else. Here Jesus is, the Savior of the world, and the night before the critical moment, he's saying, Lord, if there's any other way this can happen, then do it. Please. He had a realistic fear. Sure, he was the son of God, but he was also flesh, and so he feared things like ridicule, nails, swords, and crosses. And so facing that fear straight in the eye, he said, God, if there's any other way, I'll take it. Fear brings us to a crossroads. His choice was, I move away. Who would blame him? I walk away. If he walked away, he would not have entered his calling as the Savior, which is to redeem mankind. And so, he entered in. He entered in having said, I'd rather not do it. Any other way, I'll take it. But because he saw people like you and me, he engaged his calling. That calling took him to a cross and to his death so that you could have life. Even our Savior faced the fear. And it wasn't that he was of iron will. It was that he saw, it even says this in the Bible, he did it for the joy that he saw. He saw that if he engaged his calling, on the other side would be joy. And so he weighed the danger and the result and chose a life of significance. That is exactly where you and I stand. We weigh the danger and the result. We either walk away or choose a life of significance. Because he did, salvation is yours. And so a few hours before that moment, he was with his friends at a table and he said, see this bread, this is my body, and it'll be broken for you going to be broken so that you'll be made whole again. And then he took a cup of wine 
And the words seem easy for me to say. I would guess they were harder for him. See this cup? This is the new covenant in my blood which will be shed for you. He saw the calling. He engaged. He offers life to us. It is the same pathway. Today, I would encourage you to engage that first part of your calling, which is to be in a relationship with him. And perhaps for some of you, and I would venture to say a fair number of you, you have stood in the edge and you've heard things about Christianity or heard things about a relationship with God and it's skidded around the edges of your consciousness and you've never actually engaged. He's calling you to a relationship with him and he's done what is necessary for you to have that. Today, if you're ready, it takes very little. It takes you stepping forward and saying, I will embrace the calling of my life, which is to be in relationship with the God of the universe who loves me. And then let's see where this goes from here. If you're not ready to make that step today, I would encourage you humbly not to come to communion. Not, not because you're, not because I don't want you to, but because it turns a very potent moment, a moment that's meant to say something about the intent of our heart, and it flattens it. And it makes it into a bare ritual, which tends to do violence to our soul. Things become more lifeless when we make the moments of our life lifeless. If you're ready, move in and engage. And I invite you to our table, whether or not you are a member of Warehouse or a tenant of Warehouse, or this is your first time here. If you've asked, simply asked Jesus to come into your life, then, then come and join us today. And as the communion service comes forward, I want to let you know that how we do this. What will happen is there will be five stations throughout the room and uh, uh, as soon as I finish serving the communion servers they will go out to those stations you as you're ready make your way to one of those stations they will gather you into a group of about 12 they will serve you they will pray with you and then you'll uh, uh, eat together and then you make your way back to your seat I'll give you a couple of moments where you can pray you can consider and, and I'm going to serve our communion service